I invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, we'll look at verses 35 through 51 this evening. The sermon is entitled, Come and See. John chapter 1, beginning at verse 35, would you give your full attention to the reading of God's living and active Word. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold! the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard Him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to Him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where He was staying. And they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, When you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the Word of God. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we come now to the time of the reading and the preaching of Your Word, we ask that You would make it an effectual means of salvation for Your elect people. Give us, we pray, ears to hear and eyes to see. Grant that we might come and see the glory of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, beloved, this evening we continue with our series through the Gospel of John. And thus far, if you remember, we've covered the prologue in which the evangelist discloses the identity of the Son, a witness about the Son, a divided response to the Son, And then the redemption of the Son by way of His enfleshment or incarnation. 
We've also looked at the first part of the main body of the gospel. We did that last time in which the evangelist focuses on the testimony of John the Baptist, a man who was sent by God as a witness, to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. John testifies, as we saw last time, before the priests and the Levites who were sent from Jerusalem from the high council that he is not the Christ the day before he finally sees the Christ coming toward him while he baptized in the wilderness. You remember the moment. John is given the privilege of seeing what no Old Covenant prophet ever saw. He sees God in the flesh coming toward him. And thus, we see the incarnate Son, the Lord of glory, entering the wilderness where where John performed his ministry of baptism. He enters the wilderness context like Israel after the Exodus. But whereas during the Exodus, the Spirit descended from heaven to anoint Moses, the mountain, and the tabernacle intermittently, in the case of Jesus, the Spirit descends and remains like a dove lighting on a branch. And thus John says, this, this is He who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. No one in the history of redemption had baptized with the Holy Spirit because only God can do that. Only God can baptize with the Holy Spirit. Only God can anoint with the Holy Spirit. But Jesus is God from God. Light from light. True God from true God. The Son of God made flesh. And therefore, He is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. In our text for this evening, we transition from the public ministry of John the Baptist to the public ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. The evangelist narrates this transition by giving us an eyewitness account of the way that five different men came to be Jesus' disciples. It all happens in the context of of two encounters in which those who meet Jesus leave Him that they might bring others to Him. In the case of the first encounter, Andrew leaves Jesus in order to bring his brother Peter to Jesus. In the case of the second, Philip leaves Jesus in order to bring Nathaniel to Jesus. And what we see in this passage is the phrase, come and see, gets repeated three times, highlighting the overall theme of this section of John's Gospel, and really the overall theme of the Gospel itself. We'll divide our text into two sections. The first, verses 35 through 42, where we see Jesus' encounter with John, Andrew, and Peter. And then the second, verses 43 through 51, where we see Jesus' encounter with Philip and Nathaniel. So let's begin with that first encounter there in verses 35 through 42, Jesus' encounter with John, Andrew, and Peter. Look again at verses 35 through 36. The text says the next day, again... John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. 
So the evangelist begins this section with yet another timestamp. He did this earlier in verse 29 using the same phrase, the next day. This along with several other details in the passage gives us the impression that he is reporting these events as an eyewitness. Which means he's most likely the unnamed disciple in this first encounter. So both he and Andrew were originally disciples of John the Baptist. A disciple is a learner-follower. Such men committed themselves to particular teachers in order to learn from them over the course of several months and even years, living with them, working alongside them, that they might learn from them not only by word, but also by example. Through John's testimony and through John's baptism, they were prepared for the Messiah's coming. In other words, it was the Lord who was Himself ministering through His prophet John the Baptist. And so before John and Andrew ever meet the Lord in the flesh, He already knows them and has been at work in their hearts. And thus when Jesus walks by and they hear their revered teacher, their master, John the Baptist, identify Him saying, Behold, the Lamb of God. They follow after Him. They follow after Him. They know that He's their shepherd. And they want to hear the voice of their shepherd. And so they follow after Him. Now this is the second time that John has identified Jesus as the Lamb of God. The first, if you remember, was in verse 29. When Jesus said, or pardon me, when John said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Of course, Jesus' work as a suffering servant and sin-bearer were foremost in the mind of John the Baptist. John the Baptist knew that the reason the only begotten Son was sent into the world was to suffer the covenant curse of death on behalf of His people, that they might be redeemed from that curse through the forgiveness of their sins. It's in this sense that He identifies Jesus as the Lamb of God, like the Passover Lamb, which was offered up yearly for each household under the Old Covenant. Jesus is the ultimate Passover Lamb who takes away sin once and for all. But before we move on to these disciples' encounter with Jesus, I think we do well to note the way John the Apostle chooses to honor his former master, John the Baptist. After all, he's writing about a man he spent much time with that he learned much from. The man who introduced him who prepared the way that he might follow after the Lord Jesus. Leon Morris comments on this passage saying this, quote, It is not particularly easy to attach disciples firmly to oneself when one is calling for a strenuous following of the right. John the Baptist's ministry was anything but flashy, anything but comfortable, He's out in the wilderness. He's wearing camel's hair. He's eating locusts and honey. Most people that see him think he's lost his mind. 
divorce continues. But when this has been done, it is the mark of a truly great man that he can gently but firmly detach them so that they may go after a greater. Beloved, that was John's greatness. John the Baptist's greatness is seen in the way he committed himself to decrease so that Christ, the greater, would increase. Even to the point of sending his own beloved disciples away to follow after another. And in this, we see the nature of all Christian discipleship. What is Christian discipleship? Christian discipleship is recognizing that there's really only one master. And therefore, pointing away from oneself to His glory. That's what Christian discipleship is. Husbands, if you want to disciple your wives, point them to Christ. Wives, if you want to disciple your husbands, point them to Christ. I can testify they need it. Parents, if you want to disciple your children, point them to Christ. Brothers and sisters, if you want to disciple your neighbors, point them to Christ. It's really that simple. You don't have to have all the answers. Christ has all the answers. You're His disciple. You're being discipled too. Christian discipleship is pointing away from ourselves to Christ. And that's what we see in John the Baptist. Look at verses 38 through 39. The text continued continues, Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. So Jesus' encounter with these two men is, is fairly plain on the surface, but what we find in John's Gospel is a recurring invitation to look below the surface in order to discern the spiritual meaning behind it. The evangelist describes Jesus' actions as turning and seeing, and thus he highlights the way Jesus took special interest in John and Andrew. Jesus was just walking by. And they began to follow Him. And so Jesus turned and saw them, the text says. Now the word that's translated there, saw, is very interesting. It's used again in verse 42. It's used in verse 47. When Jesus sees Peter and Nathaniel. And it's, in this context, it means more than merely seeing with the natural eye. John doesn't simply mean to indicate that Jesus, with His human eyes, the Son of God with His human eyes, looked upon 
these men. Jesus sees these men in a different way than they see him. He sees through them all the way down to their soul. He sees it all. And so later in chapter 2 and verse 25 of John's Gospel, we're told that though many believed, quote-unquote believed in Jesus, they seemed to believe in Jesus' name, after they saw the miraculous signs that He performed in Jerusalem, Jesus did not entrust Himself to them because, quote, John says, He knew what was in man. He knew what was in man. Jesus sees through them. This distinction in kinds of seeing, one natural and the other spiritual, the other supernatural, is a major theme that runs throughout the course of John's gospel, as we're going to see together. And so when Jesus sees these men following Him, and when He turns and sees through them, He asks them, what are you seeking? This is also a major theme of John's Gospel. Later in chapter 3, one of Israel's teachers will come seeking Jesus. But he isn't seeking Him for the right reason. And so Jesus begins His conversation with him saying, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then again in chapter 6, a crowd follows Jesus across the Sea of Galilee after He filled their bellies with bread. They seek after Jesus for the wrong reasons. And Jesus teaches them saying, you are seeking Me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him, God the Father has set His seal. In these and many other ways, we find John exploring the distinction between a true and a false faith. And so as Jesus asks these two men, what are you seeking? He's really inviting them to search their hearts to discern their motivations. And they don't seem to know how to respond. Rather than responding with an answer, they respond with a question, saying, Rabbi, where are you staying? Now John explains for his non-Jewish readers that the Aramaic word translated here, Rabbi, means teacher. By addressing Jesus in this way, the two men signal their desire to become Jesus' disciples. They want to be His students. And that's why they ask Him where He's staying. You see, they're not following after Jesus in this moment in order to have a short conversation with Him. They're not following after Jesus in this moment in order to, to complete a few classes with Him and then move on with their studies. They're following Him in order to live with Him and to learn from Him long term. In other words, they believe the testimony of their former master that Jesus is the Christ and thus they're compelled to be with Him, to be His disciples. Jesus responds to their question with an invitation saying, 
Come, and you will see. It seems very plain on the surface, but think about what's happening here, beloved. These two men, these two men have gone after this one. Their, their master's just identified as the Christ, the Messiah sent from God. And he invites them to come. He doesn't send them away. He says, come on. Come. And you will see. Now this is the first of three such statements in this section. The second, of course, is in the same verse, which says, so they came and saw. And then the third occurs later in verse 46, when Philip invites Nathanael to come and see this Jesus of Nazareth. See for yourself, in other words. This also becomes a major theme of John's Gospel, which is why John's Gospel includes so many accounts of private encounters with Jesus. From these first few disciples in chapters 1 and 2, to Nicodemus in chapter 3, to the Samaritan woman at the well, and then her kinsmen, according to the flesh, who come out to see Jesus in chapter 4, to the 5,000 in chapter 6, to the man born blind in chapter 9, to doubting Thomas in chapter 20. The consistent theme of John's gospel is come and see. Indeed, the whole gospel is just such an invitation. And in this we learn something foundational about saving faith. Saving faith is not merely mental assent to certain truths about Jesus. It is a personal trust in Jesus. In other words, believing in Jesus is more than simply knowing facts about Jesus. It's also about coming to Him, receiving Him, knowing Him personally, walking with Him day by day. All those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ must come and see for themselves that He is the Messiah sent from God for their salvation. John reports that these two disciples accepted Jesus' invitation. They indeed came and saw where Jesus was staying and they stayed with Him from that point forward. The word that's translated staying here is the same word translated dwelt back in, back in verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. And thus we see that Jesus is God with us. He dwelt or tabernacled among His disciples and they dwelt or tabernacled with Him. John also adds another timestamp to his narrative saying, it was about the 10th hour, that is 4 p.m. Again, such precision indicates that he was an eyewitness to these things, which most, most likely means he's the unnamed disciple in this account. Look at verses 40 through 42. The text continues, One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. 
you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. John now narrates for us the way Peter first met the Lord Jesus Christ. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was originally with John the Evangelist, a disciple of John the Baptist. They were the first to follow after Jesus. But that same day, Andrew went and found his brother Simon and reported the good news that he and John had found the Messiah. And Andrew brought his brother Simon to Jesus. Again, come and see. But though this was the first time Simon met Jesus in the flesh, it wasn't the first time Jesus met Simon. As with John and Andrew, the text says, Jesus looked at him. In other words, he looked through him. He read him. He knew him thoroughly. It becomes evident in the next section that John and the other disciples view this kind of supernatural vision with which Jesus sees as evidence of His full deity. He is the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. So having looked at Simon, Jesus identifies him. Simon doesn't have to give his name. Jesus knows who he is. He is Simon, the son of John. But besides identifying him, he also renames him, calling him in the Aramaic Cephas, which is rendered Peter in the Greek. Jesus' renaming of Peter signifies two things. First, it signifies Jesus' authority over Peter. To name a person is to claim authority over that person. Second, it signifies a change of relationship with Peter. Jesus already knows the whole trajectory of Peter's life. And so by naming him Peter, which means rock, he signifies just how trustworthy Peter will be. But will Peter be trustworthy? Later in this very gospel, Peter will deny Jesus three times. That doesn't seem very trustworthy. We have to remember what Jesus tells Peter as he predicts his denial just before it happens. He says to Peter, I have prayed for you so that your faith won't fail. Peter is the little rock because Jesus is the, the true rock on which his hope is founded. Moving on now to the second encounter we see in verses 43 through 51, Jesus' encounter with Philip and Nathanael. Look at verses 43 through 46. The text says, The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. So Jesus, along with John, Andrew, and Peter, went north from where John had been baptizing along the Jordan near Bethany to Galilee. Galilee was their home region. And while there, Jesus 
found Philip. And taking the initiative this time, he called Philip saying, follow me. In other words, Philip, come and be my disciple. John then adds that Philip was from the same city as Andrew and Peter. And like Andrew in the previous section, Philip immediately goes out and finds Nathanael and tells him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, is another way of saying the Messiah. We have found the Messiah. That's what, that's what he's telling Nathaniel. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the old covenant prophecies about the Messiah. He's the Messiah sent from God for the salvation of his people. But Nathaniel responds with much skepticism. He finds it difficult to believe that someone so important as the Messiah could come out of Nazareth. Not because Nazareth was so bad, but because Nazareth was so insignificant. Nazareth was a small backwater town in the region of Galilee. No one expected the Messiah to come from Galilee, much less from the little town of Nazareth. But Philip invites Nathanael to come and see. Now notice there, beloved, notice what's happening there. The immediate response is, it's not possible. How is it possible that God would do this? Isn't that oftentimes the response that you get when you share the gospel with someone? The word of the cross is folly to the Gentiles. It is an offense to the Jews. How is that possible that God would do that? And that's what we see Nathaniel doing. How is it possible that God would send His Messiah through Nazareth? That doesn't seem to make any sense. Wouldn't He have His Messiah be born in Jerusalem, in the city of David? After all, He's supposed to be the son of David. And notice how Philip responds. Philip doesn't say, well, let me explain this to you. Although that wouldn't have necessarily been a bad thing to do. But his first response is, come see. Come see. See for yourself. Now how does that work for us? We're, we're not living in a time where Jesus is walking around among us. We can't just go up to someone and say, come see with me this, this man. He's right over there. Well, for us, it works by pointing them to Holy Scripture. Someone says, I can't believe that this is what God would do. I say, come, see. Let's look at the text together. Because God works through His Word to convert the hearts of sinners. This is like a window through which we can see with the eyes of faith the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Come, let's see. Look in this window with me. Do you see him there? Of course, you can't give that person eyes to see, but the Spirit can. And the Spirit uses the Word. Faith comes from hearing. Hearing through the Word of Christ. Come and see, Philip says to Nathaniel. 
Look at verses 47 through 51. The text says, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So again, we find Jesus seeing Nathanael as he approaches with a supernatural vision, just as he saw Peter when he approached him, just as he saw John and Andrew when they approached him. Jesus sees through Nathanael. Jesus already knows Nathanael. And so he describes Nathanael as an Israelite in whom there is no deceit or craftiness. This most likely is an allusion back to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1 in which the serpent was described as more crafty than any other beast of the field. The same theme comes up again in the life of Jacob who is described as crafty until he later encounters God in the wilderness and is renamed Israel. An Israelite in whom there is no deceit. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying to him, you do not bear the marks of Satan. You remember the conversation Jesus will have with the Jewish leadership in John chapter 10, when they come to him and say, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? Just tell us if you're the Messiah. Tell us plainly. He says, I've already told you, but you don't believe. Actually, it's not 10, it's 8. Pardon me. See, I make mistakes too. I just have to tell people, come and see. And I have to find it, you see. John chapter 8. Jesus says to the crowd that wants to kill him because he comes from Nazareth. Because he, we know he, he's just the son of Joseph and Mary, right? He was probably born of a demon. Yeah, this kind of thing. And he says to them, you're of your father the devil. He was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. In other words, you bear the marks of your father. You bear the family resemblance. Not the marks of Abraham. You're not children of Abraham. Otherwise, you would do what Abraham did. You would believe in me. And so as he says to Nathaniel, an Israelite in whom there's no deceit, Jesus is identifying Nathaniel as a true believer. As one of his elect. As one of his sheep. But Nathaniel once again responds with skepticism. He's not easily persuaded. And so he asks, how is that possible? How do you know me? And Jesus responds by explaining that he's always known him. 
Even when he wasn't physically present with him, he saw him when he was under the fig tree. And no one knows what Nathaniel was doing under the fig tree. The text doesn't tell us, but what he was doing there is beside the point. The point is that Jesus is able to describe here a concrete moment in Nathaniel's life such that his supernatural knowledge is undeniable. And so having heard Jesus' testimony about himself, Nathaniel confesses that Jesus is the Son of God and the King of Israel. Now these are ways of saying that Jesus is the Christ, the full meaning of which will be fleshed out over the course of Jesus' public ministry. Jesus concludes his encounter with Nathaniel by challenging the reason for Nathaniel's faith. Has Nathaniel believed in Jesus just because Jesus said to him, I saw you under the fig tree? Jesus assures Nathaniel that he will see even greater things than these. And with this statement, John introduces what distinguishes natural seeing from spiritual seeing. Throughout John's Gospel, many see Jesus' miracles and appear to believe. Many hear Jesus' teaching and appear to believe, but don't really believe. Ultimately, as we we learn in Jesus' encounter with Thomas in chapter 20, where all of these themes kind of come to their head in John's Gospel, what does Jesus tell Thomas? Thomas has just said to to his fellow disciples, unless I see him raised from the dead, I won't believe. And Jesus comes and stands before Thomas and he says, look, here I am. See the wounds in my hands? See the wound in my side? It's me. It's really me. Come, put your hands in them. See for yourself. Thomas responds, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus very kindly and graciously rebukes Thomas, saying, blessed are those who don't see and yet believe. In other words, in in the natural realm, seeing comes before believing. That's the natural order of things. But in the realm of saving grace, in the supernatural realm, in the realm of vital membership in the kingdom of God, believing actually comes before seeing. And the effectual call comes before believing. Jesus describes what Nathanael will see by appealing to Genesis chapter 28, which as we saw earlier in our first scripture reading narrates Jacob's seeing heaven opened and a stepped pyramid, a ziggurat, descending from heaven with angels ascending and descending upon it. Jacob saw that vision in a dream. And thus the supernatural nature of truly seeing who Jesus is, is highlighted. But there's more to it than that. Jesus puts himself in the place of the ziggurat. He is the one on whom the angels will ascend and descend, indicating that he's the one mediator between God and man. These earliest disciples don't yet understand the full significance of Jesus' person and work. These will be realities that become more and more clear to them over the course of their lives, over the course 
particularly over the course of their three years with Jesus. And in the end, they will see much greater things than they can possibly imagine at this stage in their walk with Him. And the same is true for you, beloved. The image to which Jesus appeals in verse 51 isn't simply from what Jacob saw while he sojourned in the wilderness. It's also from the apocalyptic vision that Daniel saw in Daniel chapter 7 in verse 13. Jesus kind of brings these two things together, and that's why he refers to himself here as the Son of Man. The Son of Man. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14 says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. There is the unshakable kingdom, the author of Hebrews says, has been given to us in Christ Jesus our Lord in Hebrews chapter 12. One way to summarize the messianic mission of the Son of God is with the two estates into which He entered. He began, of course, in the estate of humiliation, the moment of His incarnation, and He continued in that estate until the moment of His resurrection. And at His resurrection, He entered into the estate of exaltation. Now, Daniel 7 only has the exaltation of the Messiah in view. And so as Jesus claims the name Son of Man and speaks of heaven being opened through His ministry, He's pointing His disciples forward to His triumph over sin and death through His resurrection from the dead and the inauguration of His reign as King of Kings through His ascension into heaven. As we've already noted, the very first part of John's Gospel is oftentimes called the Book of Signs. Because the way John organizes it is around seven signs, seven miraculous signs that Jesus performed during His public ministry, each of which manifested His messianic glory before a watching world. But there's one sign that comes after the book of signs, which is the greatest of all signs. And that sign is Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And so as Jesus tells Nathanael, you will see even greater things than these. You will see the angels ascending and descending upon the Son of of Man. He's looking forward to his estate of exaltation which begins with his resurrection from the dead. That's the moment he secures the covenant promise of glorified life with God. For us. The Son of God took on our humanity, both body and soul, that He might advance our humanity from its current state of humiliation in this fallen world into an estate of exaltation with Him 
in the world that's to come. And that's what he's pointing his disciples to in these verses as he speaks of the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the greatest sign Jesus performs. It is the sign that makes it absolutely undeniable. He is the Son of God. And that's why as He teaches that He is the Good Shepherd, He says, I have the authority to lay my life down and I have the authority to take it up again. No one takes my life from me. What he's saying is, I am Almighty God. I am in control of all that's happening here. Essentially, what Jesus is telling Nathaniel is, you ain't seen nothing yet. The end for which Jesus was sent into the world was the glorification of our humanity. That we might be glorified with Him, both body and soul, on the last day. Jesus tells Nathaniel and the other disciples, you will see greater things than these. And the same is true for you, beloved. You will see greater things than these. You will see much greater things than anything you've ever seen with your natural eyes. You will see heaven opened up. You will be glorified. You will see Him glorified. Faith will become sight. And all things will be made new. And so, what is the gospel? It is the invitation to come and see those greater things. Those greater things which Christ has won for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God made flesh, who dwelt among His disciples. We thank You, Father, for His grace. We thank You for His mercy. We thank You that He invited these sinful men to come and to be His disciples and that He used them mightily for the advancement of His kingdom. For we are the beneficiaries not only of the work of Christ, but the work of Christ through them as they made disciples, obeying the Great Commission. Grant that we too might be makers of disciples. That we too might reach out to one another saying, come and see. See the Lord of glory. See this one who knows you thoroughly. This one who laid down his life for sinners. That they too might be glorified with him on the last day. Grant, Father, that we might have an outreaching spirit in this way. That we might be bold in bearing witness to Christ in the community in which we live. We pray, our Father, that you would do that work through your word, softening the hearts of sinners that they might turn to Christ by faith. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.